Welcome to the LTUE Podcast, a place to listen to panels you may have missed or relive a few highlights. To learn more about next year's symposium or to purchase tickets, visit LTUE.net. And without further ado, on to a session that was recorded at our 2020 symposium. Okay, it looks like we're going to start. My name is Keith Haas. I'm an intercultural historian. That means I study what happens when cultures meet each other, how they respond to that. And uh, why don't we introduce ourselves? Okay, my name is John Van Stry. I also write under the uh, pen name of Jan Stryvan, or Jan Stryvan, and read it. Um, I've been doing this since 2011. Uh, My last series, I had a string of 17 in a row top 100 Amazon overall bestsellers. So... I hit it. <laughs> I was doing well before that, but this went beyond well to like, yeah, how did I get in? But I've been doing a while, I've had a fair amount of success, and actually, if you ever have any questions, feel free to ask. I'm, I'm all about sharing what I know, because there, there weren't things like this when I started out. I learned everything the hard way, and some of that was very painful. I'm going to use the mic because I'm losing my voice. I'm Jay Boyce. Um, I actually only started writing again about a year and a half ago. Uh, my third book comes out next month. Um, I write Gamelet or Lit RPG. Um, and I have also been an editor for many, many years. So I have edited a lot of web novels and uh, Korean Chinese translations and things like that. So. I'm Stan Crow. I've done rom-coms. I have done murder mysteries. Currently working on a mid-grade slash YA fantasy fic. Um, I'm on this panel because I created my own culture by having ten children, so I know a little bit about culture shock. Oh. Okay, that explains why I didn't recognize the name. Yes. Yeah, I was going to okay. give that. Back so, to you, Bob. Sorry. I'm not Bob. Oh. Anyway, so we're going to uh, be discussing uh, culture shock and how it works and how it will work within your narrative. So I, I'd like to kind of uh, describe something to you. This is what I would teach uh, my students. I want you to imagine a bomb just went off, and everybody within the uh, immediate blast zone is killed. Then everybody beyond that kind of feels it, and they get injured. Then everybody beyond that, they feel it, but they're okay. You know, glass gets shattered, there's some ruckus, but they tend to be okay. And then we go a little bit further, and they hear it, and nothing happens. And then we keep going until they didn't even notice there was a bomb. If you imagine culture or anything out there in that same bomb scenario, you can understand culture shock. You are not from whatever the culture is. You are not in the center. You are not close to it. You are in your center, your area of your culture. And you only sort of know about the uh, culture that you're going to. So. When you uh, have this culture shock, it's literally you just going, oh, there was a bomb? I didn't know that. So the first question I've got to ask is, when your character walks into a new culture, what are some of the first things they start noticing? Language. I'm going to say that's number one. Communication, if you cannot communicate without, with anyone, like that's a big deal. So one of the ways is like in Gamelet, sometimes they automatically get like a language pack or something like that. But when I go to Spain or France or Japan or any of those places, I have no idea what anyone is saying unless they speak my language, which isn't always normal. It's true. Very English is weird. 
I'm going to expand on that a little bit and say what they're going to notice is anything that is not like what they already take for granted, which does include language. It will include scenery. It will include people's manner of dress. It will include the way they look, the way they eat, etc. If it is not like what they're accustomed to, sooner or later, and probably sooner, it will stand out. And one of the things, <clears throat> you bring a character into a place where it's a radically different culture. Well, how radically different is it? That's the first question. So when are they going to notice the culture difference? And when is the culture shock going to hit them? <clears throat> are they going to think, oh, maybe I'm just out in the hinterlands, out in the country someplace with these people who just are a little bit different, a little bit quaint? You know, or do they walk into something and everything is radically different? People are going off in languages they don't understand. Uh, something to remember, too, is if you're in a crowd, all crowds sound the same. You can go to any airport in any country, and you're going to swear they're speaking the language. Because it's just the noise, and your brain interprets it into what you expect to hear. <clears throat> Personally, my characters tend to be, when they walk into a situation, um, as I've done most of them, where they experience tremendous amount of culture shock, they tend to shut up and watch what's going on, because you don't want to call attention to yourself, because that's usually not a good thing, unless you have an idea what's going on. Okay, that brings up another question. How do the people... Um, properly hide that they're foreign when they're trying to get into the culture first? Shut up and watch. Yeah, being quiet is probably the biggest thing, but if they're not speaking your language, the odds of you being able to get away with it are pretty slim. So you've got, as a writer, you have two choices. You can have them understand the language or not. They understand the language, even if it's just a variant or a dialect. They can probably fake it by claiming, oh, well, I just moved here from, you know, way off to the east, and they suggest to say, yeah, I'll be near you that. And if they say, do you know so-and-so? No, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, I'm from New York. You have no idea how many times I grew up. I'm not from there anymore. People would ask me if I knew somebody. I'm sure any locals here have got the same thing. John just asked me if I knew someone, but I did. Yeah, because she writes in a genre that I work in, it's like I didn't recognize the name until she told me. <laughs> you know, to that I'm going to add, it also depends on which culture you go to. I guarantee you that if I were to go to like Namibia right now, I would stand out no matter how I tried to hide unless I physically concealed myself. Um, and it's not just um, skin color, racial features, it's also how you dress. If you get someone from the big city that goes to the country, they will get noticed. So if there are any obvious differences, your chance to hide goes down direct proportion to that. If everyone is weaponized and you're not, you will stand out and you will wonder, why does everyone carrying a weapon? If you are a Vulcan and the rest of the people are not, you better have a headband. <laughs> just saying. Word for Spock. That, that green tint to your skin is going to make That's, people wonder. Yeah, they, you just tell them you're sick. Yeah. It's yeah. an off day. I'm from Seattle. I didn't get a chance. <laughs> Can't say that's ever happened to me. Well, I've definitely been called foreign many times. Um, another question. How will the people respond to you when they realize you're foreign? That has a lot to do with your story as an author. How do you want to make these people? People in a lot of more agrarian and rural societies, if it's not a really poor society, are a lot less get-in-your-face kind of people because they have a hard existence and they just want to relax and not going to give you grief. When you start going into a city where people have more time, and there's a city guard, maybe these people have a lot more you know, ego or whatever, then they might start getting into your face. 
uh, as something as an author you want to determine, are you going to drop your character? I mean, if you're going to drop in the middle of the mob, you know, while they're having their big meeting, with sus who they're going to whack next year, your character's going to be in serious trouble. Then again, if you drop them among the king's guard, he's still going to be in serious trouble. Or you can drop them among people who are actually very hospitable. Like, there are cultures that are very, very nice to strangers. They're hard to find sometimes, but they do exist. <laughs> Go to rural Texas, trust me. They rural are Texas. all very kind of strange. I just moved there. It's been great. Oh, Utah can be one of them. Utah can be very friendly. And it can also be very foreboding, depending on who you're at. Um, you know, you think about it with culture, culture actually derived from the word cult, which goes back to the word follow. No, I'm not, I'm not making that up. Cult is the root word of culture. And a cult is a following. You follow fashion trends, you follow racial protocol, you follow traditions, you follow food. You follow all these things and you get enough people doing that and you have a society. And that society has its own culture. What kind of art does it like? What kind of literature does it like? What kind of buildings do they build? When something threatens that culture, that thing that they follow, they're less likely to respond in a friendly manner. So when we're dealing with culture shock with our characters, the way other characters respond when they find out that your character is different is going to depend on whether your character's culture is at odds with their culture. And if it's, an odd, if it's at odds in any meaningful way, especially if it's an existential threat, you're likely to get a hostile response. If it's just different, Maybe it'll be ostracism. Maybe they'll be, you know, they're, they're patronizing. Um, but it really, really depends. So that's something that you want to consider: is how does your uh, your character's base culture, the things they follow, compare to the things that the rest of the characters follow? Yeah, every culture will have major issues. It's something you do that is like, sorry, it's That's okay. That is totally anti-Nazi. You do this thing, and they're all going to come for you and kill you or do whatever or expel you. And they can be radically different culture to culture to culture. I mean, I found out some really bizarre ones about Iraq from some friends who were stationed there for a long time. I have no idea. Just nobody in America would ever think about it. Don't fart in Iraq for your job. <laughs> the ramifications are not what you think. Um, so you can have your character innocently do something that's perfectly fine where he's from, and now everybody wants to kill him or her, and they're running for their lives. The other part of that is that if you have some sort of, and I don't know how much other genres will see this, but if you have some sort of like summoning where the person coming in is considered the hero to save them, and there can be just a lot of expectations piled on that character, and that's kind of a different way that you can also look at it is that, hey, these people are expecting me to do something and I have no idea what's going on. Or, I did this once, the big summoning, they bring the guy in who's going to save him. He knows the culture, he speaks the language. Unfortunately, this other guy who got dragged along, he doesn't do squat. And boy, <laughs> is he going to have a rough life. <laughs> You know, I'll give you a good example of culture shock where people got treated that way, where there, there were expectations layered on them. Anyone seen the, uh, the series Avatar, The Last Airbender? Mm -hmm. we got a few of it. Okay, great. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Aang, been gone for 100 years. I'm not giving any spoilers for those who haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, it's worth watching. He goes to a place where he... I'm sorry, what? Not the movie. Not, 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 well, no, well, the, 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 the movie is... What movie? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Shyamalan tried... 
<laughs> you got to give him credit. But the thing is, is, is Aang has been gone for 100 years, so already you've got a cultural shift just for time. He's also from, you know, uh, an entirely different culture than, you know, the long tracks where they find him. Yeah, he's, he's a monk, he's a nomad versus, you know, these little villages in the south or North Pole. Um, and when they find out who he is, they have these huge expectations of him because he is from a line of these basically magic users that bring balance to the world. His culture is one where there's only one of them at a time, and they have enormous expectations. But the thing is, is by the time he's found, he's still just a 12-year-old kid. He's been frozen for 100 years. And he ran away because and he, he didn't like because the expectations. He didn't want, yeah, he, he didn't like the expectations. And so now all of a sudden people are finding out, and the people that are trying to kill him, um, the, or the main, one of the main protagonists, or antagonists, I'm sorry, um, thinks that he's like, well, he's had 100 years to train. I'm going to need to be, you know, bring my A game if I want to beat this kid. And he finds out he was only 12, and, and he's, like, massively let down, and Aang still whoops him anyway, so it was kind of cool. But, I mean, expectations are real. No, it was, it was a good scene. I can actually give an example of uh, culture shock with uh, cultural items. In Idaho, everybody owns a gun. At least one. Sorry. At least five. <laughs> That's better. And uh, I would literally do people's homework, and they would give me a gun in response. So I had, yeah. Damn, I lived in the wrong state. <laughs> so, yeah. So I had a massive amount of guns and ammo and stuff, and then I moved to uh, Yakima, Washington, and I mentioned that I owned guns and that I was, you know, wanting to go shoot some stuff in school. They called the cops on me, and I had no idea what the heck they were talking about. Because to me, this gun was this cultural item that we all used and we all understood. And everybody in Yakima, I finally realized a couple of years later, uh, they view guns as gang members because that's the only people that own guns. When you're in the ghetto, this is something that's going to be really weird for you to see. You're going to see nerds walking around with swords. Because if they own a gun, it means they're a gang member. But a sword will protect them. So they're walking around with these big gladiator swords to protect themselves from getting robbed. And they don't think anything about it. I, it. About six years ago, I was talking with a friend, and I was like, why are we carrying around swords? And it's because, culturally, that was okay. So, yeah. Works at LTV as well. Okay, I lived in California for a lot longer than I wanted to. I moved there for a job. I was there for more than 10 years, which I did not want to be there, because I couldn't sell my house. Yeah. Um, I have what I consider to be a small gun collection. It's less than 30. Yeah, that is like... I have a small amount of ammunition, about 10,000 rounds, which is nothing. Um, and in California, it got to the point I had to leave <laughs> because they were starting to outlaw stuff that I had And in California, I mean, oh my God. So I moved to Texas, and with that... If I've been buying a gun a month since then, sorry. Um, <laughs> I am now considered a dabbler because I only have like 30 something firearms and I only have about 10 or 12,000 rounds of ammunition. That's like nothing. And I found <laughs> For the record, I have two potato guns. <laughs> those are illegal in California. I'm not in California. Yeah, but can you believe that? They made those illegal. I can believe that. There are a lot of things illegal in California. But you Com can look com at common sense like is illegal there. I'm sorry, I didn't say that. Is anyone from California? <laughs> <laughs> My wife is too, so I can get away with those jokes. But 
you have things like my hair. I mean, this is a wig, but if I walk onto BYU campus, I'm going to get some freaking strange looks. Around here, you guys expect this. This is normal. I'm among people that I like. However, not everyone is that accepting. But if I go on UVU campus, it's okay. Just make your hair blue. Like, okay. No, I'm serious. Make it blue, go on game day, and no one will even look at you funny. Yeah. All right. They would just assume you were I can only wear my blue wigs to BYU. Oh. I have them. That's so sad. Okay. Uh, another thing to think about is the amount of knowledge that people actually have about the culture that you're going into or that you're from. I'll give you an example that has happened a couple times for me. Uh, in Japan, they sort of know who white people are. You walk through the streets, they'll definitely notice you. They'll definitely look at you. But and there will be people will be people that will walk up to you and be like, "Are you from America?" and just want to talk to you. But this is only if you're white. If you're black, they honestly believe that black people don't exist. They they just don't comprehend it. Japan? Japan? Seriously? Yeah. They don't see them. Yeah. They literally don't know black people. Do they not follow sports? Oil exploration. So he spent a good deal of time in Africa as a child. He is a redhead. <clears throat> Redheads in Africa are usually jinns. They're evil spirits. The only way to determine if they're human or not is you have to cut them. If they're a jinn, smoke will come out. If they're human, blood will come out. Every time he walked through a crowd, he came out with cuts on his arms. Every single time. We're not talking once, we're not talking a hundred times, we're talking like a thousand times. And this has given him issues later on in life and stuff, he doesn't like being around crowds. Being around crowds means he's going to get cut. It's true. I wouldn't that is a long thing of, yeah, in our different cultural differences in our world today. I would yeah. invest in Kevlar. Mm-hmm. Didn't have Kevlar. Like okay. The 60s. Oh, okay. And another thing is food. Like, if I go and I eat certain foods of other countries, like, they make me sick. And we're not all, like, we have genetically shifted ourselves at times where if we were to go eat things from another culture sometimes it's not going to agree with you and you're going to get really sick and you have no idea that it's the food that's causing it and in some cultures most specifically like Greek and Turkish cultures you can't turn down food no. people offer you food or if Mexican. you don't take it you are denying their love and they will never let you back in their home it's true you have to get the gift of tongues, as we say it. Sorry. But right over your heads. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, even when you're going to a, a place that's not quite so different. I mean, I've lived in several different places. I remember the first time I went to England, well, the only time I went to England. Um, it was interesting because I immediately noticed, and I never quite figured it out, but I immediately noticed that English people looked slightly differently. Slightly different. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm still not quite sure why. Some of it might be the teeth. They don't yeah. do dental. Well, well no. Even when they weren't trying to smile. Um, and I know I love the English. I Maybe love the they English. just really... didn't want to smile at you. Well, but when you go, whenever but, you go to a foreign country that is still not, because you know, very few people here are indigenous or actually from here. This is a melting pot. Well, I'm part Native American. You criminals are still. Uh, <laughs> even though I don't look it. Okay, I'm part Mohawk. Now. You go to places like England, Poland, Germany, and you will see, because there's still a strong racial type, you will see among people there a similar kind of look among the majority of the population. Because they, 
you go to Sweden and you're going to get the tall, blonde, blue-eyed kids. Yeah. Yep. But culture, the thing is, is, is even in the same country, it can be different. We've already talked about uh, Texas, California, Idaho, Washington. Every locality. Every yes, every locality. Um, I'm currently from Moab, Utah. That's where I've been for the last couple of years. Um, it's really interesting because the us versus them dynamic is us, the locals, versus specifically the European tourists. We, we like the Asian tourists. We like the American tourists. There's something about the European tourists that... They just, it doesn't blend well with the locals. And you can always tell a tourist, no matter where they're from, when you've lived there a little while. And there are all these little cues that, even if someone were to point them out to you, you may not see until you've been immersed in that culture long enough that you understand their mindset. And once you understand their mindset, then you can see through their eyes. And then all of a sudden, those things that, that you can't explain well, you no longer need to explain. It's just like, oh, of course. To riff on that a little further, I grew up in New York, just outside of New York City. I actually have lived in New York City uh, for a couple of years. And you, now think about this. New York City is a serious melting pot. Every culture in the world has a group of people there. So you can see everything, eat anything. So you can't judge the tourists based on the culture, or rather the mode of dress, because you get this from the locals. But you can still pick out the tourists because they have, yeah. Moab printed all over their... You know, things like that. Or they don't understand certain things like cutting to the front of the line or coming up to the front of the line to ask information instead of like first asking people, can I ask a question? Or just going up to the guy, the vendor, and saying, buy something and then ask him the question. Don't just take up his time. I mean, there's a whole different dynamic of how you interact with people in New York. And tourists come in and they just don't get it. And they don't clash with that very specific New York type culture. Even though they may look just like anyone else. That can be a pretty interesting thing to deal with. And if you see someone like gazing around with deer in the headlights, it's usually a pretty good indicator that they have no idea where they're going. In Hawaii, we could, pop, we could spot a tourist pretty easily based on the food they were buying and where they just told me they were from. Like, they would be like, oh, I went to Waikiki Beach. And I'd be like, tourist. <laughs> no local would go there. <laughs> or they'd be wearing uh, slippers, uh, what they'd be calling their flip-flops. Uh, they'd be like, oh, look at my flip-flops. And they'd be wearing socks on. And we'd be like, yeah. You're from Utah. <laughs> I, I'm from Utah. I can say that. And it, was, it would be very obvious to us. And we'd point this out to them and they wouldn't believe us. Or when they're at the grocery store, what they're buying is always party food. And they always look like, oh, this is going to be really, this is going to be really cheap. And we're all kind of sitting there watching them going, wait until they find out the price of what they're buying. Because a gallon of milk when I was there was uh, $5. Mm-hmm. So, yep, by law. So, and the ship has to be made by U.S., and it has to be a U.S. crew that made it in it. So, there's a lot of restrictions there. So it is actually more expensive to buy a gallon of milk than a gallon of gas in Hawaii. But do not put gas in your breakfast cereal. It's not going to work idea. well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, milk in your car, well, that they, won't They just you. don't go back and forth. But the nice thing about different cultures, though, is um, with that culture shock, there, there are ways to use that as a, to your advantage as a writer. Let's take Harry Potter, for instance, as a very well-known 
series where Culture Shock was a vehicle for informing the readers. And the whole, hey, I'm a new guy, that trope works really well because it doesn't necessarily get in the reader's face, and yet it still gives them a plausible setting in which you could introduce information to the reader that there's no real reason the reader should know, but that everyone else in the book knows. So Harry starts out as this kid literally living in a closet in an abusive uh, relationship, suddenly finds out that not only is he potentially magical, but he has this amazing uh, heritage that he's famous, that he's wealthy, and yet he still doesn't know what to do with it. And so they take him off to this magical school that you know two days prior he didn't know existed, and he is lost. But the thing is, is, is J.K. Rowling took that and understood that none of us would know what someone meant when they said Leviosa. And so that we saw. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I was waiting for someone to correct that. <laughs> and and she, she used that very, very well, and then there are many other stories that do this. Um, and it's, it's an excellent tool for plausibly bringing people into the world and getting that culture immersed in, because you get to grow up with the character, and then you don't necessarily face the same steep learning curve, and your readers don't look at the book and two pages in think, I have no idea what's going on, and I'm just going to put this down. It's kind of a melee type of fiction, where you're talking about the world around you. And I have to admit, the more I think about it, the more I've used it. You know, People are suddenly put in a situation where they don't understand everything or know everything, and you know, that journey of discovery for them, even if it's only for like part of the book, lets you explain the world and the cultures and the things that are going on to the reader without having a wall of text them or you know or lecture them. Everybody discovers it as your character discovers it. So it it, it has a lot of good uses for when you're building a story, especially if it's going to be a longer story or a series. You know, and, because the reader, when they enter your story, remember, they're going to get culture shock. They are exactly what we're talking about this, because you're dropping them into a culture that you just wrote about that the reader knows nothing about. So how do you explain that culture to them? Usually one of the typical things that a lot of us writers use is to say, well, the person, the protagonist, he doesn't know everything about the culture. So you get to learn with him. The other thing is that you can do a culture shift, which is, um, we have a popular thing in our genre called system apocalypse, where some sort of like EMP thing hits the world, <clears throat> monsters and a system spawn. And people have to learn to deal with the new reality. And so that's another different type of culture shock in that you're like, well, I haven't been fighting monsters my whole life, but now I have to, to live. I haven't used magic before, but now I've got this, like, what do I do? And that fundamentally changes the world around you, especially when, you know, 95% of people die. And the fun thing about that can be is everybody has to learn the world around you. Right. It's not just your protagonist. And it also really changes the dating game. <laughs> limits the pool just a little yeah, bit. Well, yeah, well. <laughs> um, <clears throat> brings up an interesting question. Or, sort of. Um, I hope it's interesting. Well, we'll it better it be interesting. interesting. Um, Say it with an accent. Uh, sorry, my, my brain just went farty. <laughs> just don't do that in Iraq. It's okay. Uh, how do you take, or do you take other cultures and kind of mix them in as part of the culture shock? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, for mine, I have a whole new world. And I'm not going to sing. 
I'm very tempted, but I'm not going to. No, I want to. Um, yes. Anyway, so you hit, I have to. I, I have. I introduced different cultures, especially in book three that's coming out next month. Yay. <coughs> Um, anyway, so I have these different cultures that I'm introducing, and I have taken things from multiple different cultures that, I mean, they're not the same cultures, but they have similarities that people can see, and that I've kind of based things off of loosely, so that I don't get shamed for cultural appropriation. I used, uh, I heavily took Navajo culture for a book, actually a trilogy, and uh, a lot of things in it were steeped heavily in Indian, primarily Navajo culture. I've used um, Japanese culture. I've used some Indian culture. The person who did the best was Rogers Lodner, the Lord of Life. That is, uh, there's so much about Indian culture in it, it's amazing, that most people don't even realize. Um, it's nice to use culture. Oh, I've also used um, Norse culture and uh, some of the different, I forget which race of the Britons it was culture. Picks. Not the pets, I forget, I remember. It was a while ago. But the using of the different cultures, it lets you, you've got a whole world that's already there. If you take some of these mythological cultures or their belief systems and different things, and you can build around it and, and do around it. Um, and it gives you a nice background, a rich background. You can read on it. I mean, using fairies, elves, all that stuff. I mean, a lot of Irish culture. Um, and these are standard things. A lot of people use, will use different mythologies in their writing, especially if they're writing some kind of a fantasy thing. And it can be a lot of fun to drop a fantasy type of background to a culture into a modern day or ultra-modern culture and then play with the uh, incongruities. Yeah. I can't speak well. Oh, that's okay. okay. To give you an example, uh, J.K. Rowling just took a lot of English culture and put it into a magical world. It's and very English. Yeah, it's, it's very, very English, and it's it's hilarious to explain to friends who don't know this that half the references they're making are just these British things that they all take advantage for. That they I laughed my head off when she introduced garden gnomes. I, <laughs> I'm serious. I sat there just laughing because they are everywhere. Oh yeah, uh, I'm, I just feel like putting this out. Um, did you guys know that the BYUs all line up with the uh, Hogwarts houses? Really? Yeah, I didn't. They even match the colors. So I went to BYU Hawaii, and it's got the same colors as uh, Gryffindor. <laughs> and everybody there acts like a Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> They're very brave. No, Provo is Slytherin. No, Provo is Slytherin. That would be Salt Lake Silver. City Community College. LDS Business College. There we go. Yeah. My sister went there, and she was like, yep, that's Slytherin. Uh, and you guys would be uh, Ravenclaw, but there's so many people going there. Uh, there's a there's a bit of, oh, what is the other one? Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff, Hufflepuff in there. And yeah, BYU-Idaho, they even talk like they're Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, we're, we're not going to be great, but at least we're going to make it. <laughs> one thing that I want to bring up with this is that in every culture, there are classes, and there are multiple cultures within a culture. Like, you're going to have, like, in fantasy worlds, you usually have the nobility, or the politicians, or the superstars, or someone that's, like, the high end of society. They're going to have a very different life from the middle class workers, or those who are in the slums, or the guards. Like, those are very different classes, and depending on where your person is put, 
they can have a very different experience if they're dropped in the slums versus if they're dropped in a castle. Sure. Plus, if there's a caste system involved, right. in a lot of societies, you can't move from caste to caste. You're stuck. Well, and you also have subcultures. In fact, they had a panel on that uh, here at LTUE some years ago. Um, take, for instance, the nerd crowd, the gamer crowd, whatever. I mean, once upon a time, it was just nerds. And then somehow you got the dweebs, and somehow you got the geeks. Well, even within the nerd culture, you still have the subcultures. And some of those subcultures can come into conflicts. Uh, Star Wars fans versus Trekkies. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. For anyone, those, those can create some problems. They can coexist. They can coexist. I actually like both. Um, but it's maybe hard I shouldn't have added myself, but it is hard. Yeah, but the thing is, 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 is even within the same culture you can still get a dichotomy. And the reason that's important is because stories are driven by conflicts. I mean, the reason we tell stories is not merely to entertain ourselves, but, but we, well, I mean, that's part of it, but entertainment, I mean, how many of you, when you read a book, like to get lost in a good world? A, a good few of you. And a lot of times we do that because the, the lives that we're living, it's not necessarily that they're bad, but maybe those lives aren't quite what we want them to be, or maybe we just need a little change. Um, the, yeah, the, the, the underlying idea is we all want to be happy. We all have a different idea of what happiness means. And when we're not quite there, we have a natural human tendency to want to get there. Sometimes a good book will get us there. The reason that you had 300 people gather on, over in a canyon uh, a couple hours ago to watch uh, Dan Wells and Brandon Sanderson was because these guys are master storytellers. They give us rich worlds with deep cultures that even though they are different from us, we can still connect. We can find something in them to relate to or we can immerse ourselves in something new. We can step outside our own lives, our own worlds for a little bit of time. Also, when you have cultural conflicts, that's a problem to be solved. And we as writers have to come up with creative solutions. And the best writers are often the ones that come up with you know, the, the most, creatable, uh, most creative but also the most plausible solutions. And when we look at that, we think, I wish I had thought of that. Because everyone has problems. And when you are dealing with a new culture, you will have problems. I remember as a 12-year-old boy, I had lived my whole life in northern Utah. That should tell you a number of things. And then I moved to Las Vegas. If you want to talk about culture shock, you move from northern Utah to Las Vegas. And I had a miserable time in junior high. Um, I, I completely closed in on myself. I didn't want to make friends, nothing. I was nowhere near this happiness cloud that was up in the sky. And it took time to get used to the culture, to get used to the people, everything, until finally, by the time I graduated from high school, I'm like, I love this place, and I went back after college. So we as storytellers, we are giving people an opportunity to, to set aside their own personal problems and to see how other people solve their problems, because it gives us hope that when we're done reading, when we step out of that story and back into our real world, that we can find solutions to our problems too. Oh, very good. Um, I don't know. I will just suggest though, if you are writing a book that has culture shock in it, I would suggest you go somewhere where you will have culture shock, just to experience it at least for yourself. Like, you need, you know, reading and stuff, reading about it, doing research is one thing, but experiencing it yourself is one of the best ways to have it ingrained in you and to notice things that, you know, if you literally go at it with a perspective of, I want to learn what I can and what I see here, it will be a lot better for you than if you just 
never do that. And the first time I went to England, I flew into Heathrow, which is like the poor man, no, Gatwick, not Heathrow, the poor man's yeah, airport in England. I'm traveling by myself, I'm going to meet somebody. And, um, you know, I figure, how bad can it be? I'm going to a place, they speak the same language. Uh, they sure <laughs> the person who was supposed to pick me up. No, they don't. So I'm sitting I'm wandering through the airport. I have no idea where to find this person, but it's like, you know, I get off the plane and all the policemen are carrying machine guns, wearing bulletproof vests, and have dogs that are wearing bulletproof vests. And I'm like, wow, this is different. And this is like the Western society? This isn't Turkey, is it? And <laughs> things were just different. And, you know, and the people at immigration were incredibly freaking rude. Um, you know, they're like, oh, are you going to become, stay and become a, a, you know, a doll? And I said to them, why don't I stay here? i got a high-paying job back in the States. Um, because they have a high opinion of themselves. Yes, but they were rude about it. Well, you know, they could have at least been polite. No, know? they're not nice and to anyone. So, uh, it was just that lost feeling for a few moments. It's like, yeah, if I have to get out of this, I can, but i got to find this person who's supposed to meet me here. And it was a really good dropped into a culture that was a lot more different than I thought it would be. But still speaks English, so you could understand. Yeah, I could still understand. Well, I could uh, mostly understand. <laughs> I mean, if you want something here, go up into New England, you know, where they're all basically speaking Cockney. I experienced that a lot in my summers, so I can understand Cockney pretty well, because that's pretty much what they speak up in New England. You should, you should try Lancashire. Lancashire <laughs> is much more difficult to the, the Lancastrian dialect. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I was out in Norfolk while I was there. So. Norfolk? Normal for Norfolk. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. I've Most people that. pronounce it Norfolk, except if you live there. Yeah, yeah. it's Norfolk. Uh, good old Gat McDonald. Anyway, um, uh, there are actually cultures out there that specifically go from culture to culture to culture, and they have a, a different way of responding to the cultures. So how would they respond differently, and how would people respond to them differently? You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. <laughs> well, there are, there are two really big differences in a lot of cultures. So American culture is very individualistic. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, you can do your thing. Asian societies as, as a whole tend to be, oh, yeah. you are doing this for the good of society. You are part of the whole. And so that is a huge shift when you go from one to the other, regardless of which way it is. Something that just occurred to me. Um, now, this is, I don't think this is so true anymore, but up until at least 100 years ago, take the Catholic Church. Now, they had a culture within that church that was unique to that church, and you would see that culture in that church no matter where in the world you went. Because all of the people, the priests and the nuns and stuff, were all went through the same thing. They all spoke... Latin. They all did things the same way. And there was an internal culture to that. So you knew if you went to anywhere in the world, there were things you could get from a church, like sanctuary and other things. And if there was a church in the area, enough of the people in the area understood those cultural things. So you could go to a place like that and find, you know, if you needed help or supper or any of that stuff, you could, you could go to a church. Now you go to McDonald's because it's the same everywhere. But I don't know if they'll save you, but <laughs> Well, and you think about it, there's the language within those subcultures that you might think you know what they're saying, but you really don't. Um, 
For instance, I had a friend who they had a steakhouse being built behind their house. And they're like, why are they building a restaurant in the middle of a neighborhood? Most of you know that a steakhouse is a church. They had no idea. They thought it was meat. So. Oh, uh, another, another point on culture things. Now, people talk about Spanish, and hopefully nobody thinks it's the wrong way, but then there's Mexican. The languages are not the Castilla same. Castilla different. And I had a teacher in high school who was my Spanish teacher, who was also the French teacher, and he knew so many languages because he had been a world traveler when he was a young man. He would say, you know, here in America, we'll do this. Oh. You do that in Spain, and they're going to kill you if you do this, because <laughs> this is how you summon a prostitute. <laughs> yeah. That knock that most people, you don't do that in Mexican. Like, it's a huge insult. It's a Yes. Yep. <laughs> so, sorry, I just swore. And you don't, you don't ever do the reverse peace sign in bread, and that's the same as flipping someone off. Yeah. Okay, we Unless have... Yeah. Or pointing at people, like... Oh, yeah. Or how you point. Like, in some cultures, you don't point with your finger, you point with your lips. You point with your hand, or your lips, or... Or a laser. Yeah. I ran the student court for one year. We were involved in all student um, disciplinary actions. And we had this one where this guy's from Iran, and the, he basically kind of got into this with the head of security. And he didn't, as far as he knows, he did anything wrong, but the head of security couldn't deal with it because what he did is he got up to him like this. <laughs> this is how people in Iran talk to each other. They get this. <coughs> so for this kid, he was like, this is respectful. I'm getting in his face to talk to him. Security guard's American, the head of security, rather. He's like, whoa, get back. And nobody knew that, but I had lived with Iraq, uh, Iranians for quite some time, so I was there, and thank God, the guy would have been like expelled, and you know, he was on a student visa. I said, no, this is their culture. This kid didn't think he did anything wrong. This is how he was raised. And none of them knew this. They were totally blown away. So that was like a reverse of the culture shock. They were, I mean, yeah, we're in America, but they were shocked by the culture this kid brought with him. They had no idea. Then there are like the second generation kids who, have some of the culture from both their parents and the culture that's around them. I know of some kids that were, I think they were Taiwanese, and have you, if you've ever heard of cupping, it's they light a candle in a jar and they put it in, and it's supposed to help, I can't remember what it's supposed to help with some illness, but it leaves these massive bruises. And yeah, these big circular bruises. And a lot of times, if the teachers don't know what that's from and they don't know that it's a cultural thing, they'll call the cops or CPA on these parents. And they're just like, no, we were just trying to help him get better from his sickness. Like, it's completely normal to them. Whereas the teachers were horrified that these kids were being abused. How about, uh, do you have a culture shock story since we're. I have plenty of culture shock stories, but for sake of time, I probably shouldn't share any. Okay. <laughs> oh, it is time. It is, it is time. I'll tell you uh, one culture shock story I had. I was on my mission, and I was in Phoenix, but I worked with everybody who didn't speak Spanish or English. And there was a Middle Eastern family that really wanted to talk to me, and I was looking forward to it. You know, I was preparing myself, and they, the guy I was working with decided not to tell me a certain cultural part about it. And that is, when they meet you, they come up to you, they hug you, and then they kiss you on the lips. And you, you only do this with the men. So I met the dad, the uncle, the grandfather, the fa you know the father, you know, several cousins, and then I had then I met their beautiful, beautiful daughter, and I had to shake her hand, and that was one of the greatest disappointments of my entire life. 
to this day, it haunts me. <laughs> I won't yep. tell your mom or your wife. Uh, but we often don't realize that culture shock happens to us a lot. I actually have to uh, prepare myself for coming into Utah because I live in the Northwest. I live in Washington and Oregon. And so I, I look at the, uh, your uh, big advertisements and I just laugh because I'm like, you'll never see those in Seattle. You want to see some good culture stuff, move to Oregon. <laughs> they are from a particular part of Europe. They're mostly Finns and Swedes. And um, you will pick up on certain things of that culture that you will find really don't like. It's true. I lived there for over a decade. Would have stayed if it wasn't for the tax situation. <laughs> I spent my childhood there, so I know. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, folks.